my name is Gianni Russo, a.k.a. Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from The Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story. Walking with a limp like, will I ever run? Once again, or is this it? Am I forever done? Living in the hospital was never fun. Some people were cool, but not everyone. Welcome, everybody. It's time for another Hollywood Godfather podcast. And I can guarantee you this is going to be a real interesting one. First, being we have a lady with us now, she'll always be first. Julia, welcome our co-host, Julia. How are you today, my dear? Yeah, doing well, doing well. And my co-writer, my friend, my compadre, my brother I never had, Pat Piccarelli. How is everybody today? Uh, We have a very good show today. Uh, Before I introduce you to the guests, I'll give you a little background. He's gone. Oh, no. Okay. Can you see and hear me? Yeah, I, we see him. Oh, all right. All right. Because my screen is gone. I thought you said he was gone. I no, said, no. The screen is, no it's, um, we, we get blamed for this, too, now. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Uh, I'm sorry about that, folks. We had a little uh, technical snafu. Anyway, before I introduce our guest, I want to give you a little background on him. Uh, Paul Tanzo was a uh, made member of, of, of the Mafia. Worked out of Boston, uh, as is the usual, you know, the usual case. He got a little bit of trouble. In fact, he got in a lot of trouble. And uh, he uh, managed to secure the services of uh, arguably the best criminal lawyer uh, that ever was, uh, F. Lee Bailey, uh, to represent him. And uh, aside from that story that he's going to tell us, he's going to go through uh, his uh, career, be it as it may. So, without any further delay, we give you Paul Tanzo. How you doing, Paul? Hi, uh, how are we doing today? And uh, thank you for having me on. I'm really looking forward to the interview. No, it's okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, with, with, we have an audience and no one knows who you are. I don't think the audience knows who we are. That said, uh, give us a little background. You know, slow with you growing up. Everybody has a, has a starting point here. How you got involved. With organized crime, but you didn't. You 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 weren't born taking the oath. You know what was your childhood like? How did you grow up? How did you get involved with organized crime? And Paul, can I give you a little intro? Uh, make sure don't don't th- take anything for granted. Our audience doesn't know who you are, so giving dates and times help them chronologically follow your story, including me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh. Um, more or less. Uh, it was all around you growing up. The North End is kind of a real small, tight-knit neighborhood. There's I no know it well. like it in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you've ever been down there for a couple of days, you'd understand. And uh, it's really close. Back in the 70s, I mean, nobody really had anything. And I grew up on the waterfront in what we called ghost town. And the car wash was pretty much a junkyard. And that's where uh, we grew up down there hanging around and playing down on abandoned buildings and junkyards and you know doing normal 70 kid stuff kick the can <laughs> oh, yeah. well, how did you how did you transition into any any kind of crime you started small joined a gang what did you do um there was really no joining gangs it was just like i said it was like on every corner everybody knew who the guys on the corner were you know pretty much like you see in the movies yeah uh, back then i'm pretty it was uh it was Johnny, Richie, and uh, Peter on the corner, and everybody knew who they were and what they stood for. And, and um, you see a lot of mimicking on it in our Bronx tale. And uh, it's pretty much like that, you know, especially when you're in those little Italian neighborhoods like that. Well, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is so, especially I, I found myself, not like the New York families that were organized for a while, but like Boston, even Chicago, they have one group. And that's who's running the town for that time. Yeah. And I was up there. I, you know, Nikki Vaccaro and all them, I guess. Oh, yeah. Nikki Strager. Yeah. Hello. Good, good man. Dear man. He's, oh, he's man. Great. I used to hang out in Strager's his restaurant. Every other restaurant he bought either. Oh. No, I'm, I'm very familiar. In fact, I'll be up there. Our audience can know that. I'll be at the Regent in Arlington, Mass. Oh, I'm always down to Anthony's Feast. Well, you got to come to my show. I'm at the I, Argent uh, I will. Uh, July twentieth. Walked in on Thatcher Street down at um, 
Sal's Lunch. Uh, my right. friend's family owns the building at the little luncheonette place over there. And we usually lock in. It's like a little mini block party every year. Yeah, I'll be there on the 20th of July and the 22nd. Huh? Good to know. I'll yeah, be, let I'll me be know. You'll be my guest. Feature. I'll have tickets for you. <laughs> Sounds Let's good. Let's get back to the show. I'm sorry to introduce right. a commercial for myself, but I had to get it in. <laughs> I mean, I guess okay, you so noticed it as a kid. Like, one of my big analogies is, like, I used to go to the North End swimming pool every summer. And right. Everybody else's parents were there except my parents because my parents had to work. <laughs> you know, and all my friends' parents were there because no one else ever had a job. So, I mean, it's really in your face. You're wondering why your parents ain't around and their parents are always around. And they have better cars and better clothes. And, you know, you kind of grow up wanting, you know, well, they they and they they gave you a built-in a curiosity of how come they can do this and nobody goes to work. <laughs> yeah, more or less. You know, um, I I'm the only person in my family ever arrested. Uh, no one else has ever been. I'm the only one with a record. Most uh, almost all my uncles basically were all our World War II vets. Yeah, decorated. Big shout out to my nephew, Michael DeRosa, retired petty officer, second class, three tours of duty, search wow. and rescue instructor. That's great. That's yeah. great. So, well, you know, again, like you said, family, it's just we, the need wanting more than what you have. And you think you're so poor at that time. And look back now, those are the richest days of your life. Well, yeah, as you said, growing up, and I, I'm a lot older than you in the 70s, I already made the Godfather. <laughs> but it didn't change 20 years earlier. It was the yeah. same thing. You know, I, I grew up without my parents. I came out of Bellevue five years being quarantined. So when you hit the street, you're saying like, wait, look at all the privileges these people have. How'd they get them? <laughs> and you could easily go the wrong way. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, there was some nights growing up. And uh, one of the stories I used to tell is me and my friend one night was pouring rain. We're freezing. We're hungry. Neither one of us got a dollar between us. And. We actually stole so much pizza coming out of the Regina pizza just to eat. You know? Oh, yeah. There was survival. Some, you know, it's called survival. Yeah. You know, there was some rocky times as a child. And I mean, most of the families, they had more or less. My, you know, I had two brothers, two sisters, and a living aunt, and two dogs, and one bathroom in the whole house. <laughs> so, you know, it was pretty crowded. Yeah. So, what, what, you know, what did you start doing? Uh, me, I was I was more or less just a troublemaker going around, uh, you know, just being the wild kid in town and doing stuff like that. And that gets the attention of the other guys. And next thing you know, they're giving you a couple of bucks to break someone's windows and stuff like that. And you're a kid. You don't know the politics of it. You know, just know you're selling window insurance mm -hmm. <laughs> and more or less stuff like that. And, you know, and then it progresses. So. Some are with slush carts, ain't supposed to be solid slush with alcohol in them, so they get their slush carts burnt, and, you know, it progresses, and it goes up and up and up. Well, but, uh, yeah, my big claim to fame was uh, being framed for two counts of murder, I think of it. That's really what dragged me in. At that point, I had no choice. You know, I had to jump in with both feet. It was the only way I was going to get out the other side. So how did, who, 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 who put you in that position? Somebody we would know that you could talk um, Actually, uh, yeah, everybody involved knows each other or actually cousins. You've been down the road that everybody's related, more or less. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, two kids got murdered. And uh, their eyewitness basically said it was me when it was him. So he there came back uh, during the second trial. He showed up and he actually confessed to the crimes and gave an exact ballistics recount of makes, models, calibers, distances the guns were fired. And uh, they told him, since they can't charge him with murder, they're going to charge him with perjury. And he goes, well, I'm going back to my original story. Paul Tanzo did it. <laughs> <laughs> original oh, wow. story. Yeah. How, how old were you when this was going on? Huh? How old were you? I was 21 when the case started. I was 30 when it ended. <laughs> Two jury trials. Full jury trials. And Marvin, Marvin represented John Bolton? Um, Ken Fishman actually handled the first trial. And... Um, Mr. Bailey F. Lee uh, came in on the second one, and I remember him first time talking to him, and uh, his exact words were, I waited my whole life for this case. <laughs> you know? He's like, I wanted an innocent man on the stand, and a guilty man pointed the finger. He goes, you've got to give me this case. 
I thought it was pretty much a practical joke because I was serving natural life at the time. You know, no chance of ever coming home. And next thing I know, I'm making history and I'm the first person ever to be released on bail after being convicted of a double homicide. Well, Belli was licensed there in Miami, so you were lucky that he had a license up there. <laughs> well, Bailey, oh, he was licensed everywhere. He he, he was, uh, I, I can't even say enough about him, but just to be around him, uh, he had that I, just effect. Made you feel I, knew, I knew him really well, you know. Did you? Oh my God! Yeah, I mean, uh, I met him with Roy Black, Al, Al Malnick. I mean, <laughs> you're giving him credit, but he was in an arena of the best. Oh, oh my God! I, my cousin, um, Louis Ferrara, aka I call him Bunker, still since we were kids. He actually hung out with him and Ken, and that's how I ended up originally getting Ken Fishman. And uh, uh -huh. Ken Fishman became a judge later on, and uh, I've never met a more noble or honorable man. So yeah. you were convicted after the first trial? I was convicted. I was serving uh, natural life, another one on and after, and a three to five on and after that for a handgun that was never produced into evidence. I was convicted because the district attorney read uh, their so-called eyewitnesses' testimony to the jury, and the jury was never informed that the eyewitness wasn't present. So they went on the fact that he was actually the witness telling the story. And so I have actually had the right to face my accuser in a court of law. Plus, so I that, took a lie detector test, polygraph. So that's how you got the second trial? That's how I got the second trial. They were they, how did, Judge Sliakos, oh. I think, was the deciding judge. Uh, he actually granted me back on bail. I was on bail for the, almost the whole first trial. And I hit so the for, streets. For uh, a lot of our, our audience who don't, you know, don't know who F. Lee Bailey was, I mean, Effie Bailey at that time. What year was this? You're talking about Paul? Well, 70s, you're saying. This oh, is he, on 1988, I think, or 80, 88 or 89. He got involved in uh, the case. The case started Effie, in 86. Effie Bailey was a star from the 1950s. I mean, he was he was the criminal lawyer. And what you're saying is he approached you. Um, yeah, I was using his firm already with um, Ken Fishman, uh, Peter Horseman, TK, Dan Leonard. Uh, secretary up there, Gloria, uh, she used to make my tie every day because I never knew how to make a tie. <laughs> I have a reason to wear a tie. I wasn't a yeah. tie person. Yeah, 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 yo, yeah, you were from the street. Who wears ties? Yeah. All those years at Catholic school, I wore a clip on. <laughs> no, but I, I think what he said earlier it was that was the attraction for, for, for Lee because Lee loved cases. And as he said, what attracted to him was this is a man that was convicted for murder who's innocent. So this was his time to shine, and he just wanted to do it. He didn't need money, believe me. <laughs> uh, yeah, he did it pro bono the second trial. Wow. Yeah. You know, I remember he took me for lunch in the uh, Parker house. And we got cheeseburgers there. They're like $30 cheeseburgers. And I'm looking at the prices, and I'm like, oh, my God. you know. And he's like... What they give me on pro bono fee doesn't even cover our lunch, he said. <laughs> you know, and, uh, he had so many colorful sayings and like so many good memories of him. But I mean, that's time. the whole team I had up there. I had the dream team before OJ. I just want everybody to know that. I really did. <laughs> well, I know I you did. Best attorneys working round the clock for me. Even private investigators like Gary Vail, Charlie Moore, you know, never gave up. You're lucky. Well, you know, it is their loyalty to that group. That's that's the whole thing. You were blessed. You had an angel on your shoulder, man. Oh yeah, I, I agree with that. No, you wouldn't be on this show if you didn't have them. You'd still, oh. <laughs> you'd still be inside. But the second trial, Paul, yeah. how long was yeah, the trial? I mean, um, they were about in and out fast, and uh, the lawyers were astonished. Like the whole jury waited downstairs for me, talking me and kissed me. Really? Yeah. I think the Judge McDaniels, his niece was up there because she was a law student. She even approached my lawyers and says, wow, they're railroading your client. Yeah. Good for so, you. So, um, you how, how much time did you do prior to the second trial? I think it works out to like three years you know, in between and plus the time on bail before I made bail and the first thing. I, I tell you the truth, like I think back of it now and it's like there's so much of it I just don't remember. I don't know if it's blocked out or whatever. You know, very. It's as you know, uh, it's very, very rare to get bail on a capital case. I know. I paved the way for a lot of other innocent guys to come home too. I actually met 
Angel Aclaveria, he actually used my case, did 35 years for a murder he didn't commit, came home. And um, a couple other ones, but the DNA was never properly tested. They retested it, guys released after 30 years and stuff. And they used my case to come home on bail and stuff like that. I'm looking at Julia's face, who's a girl from Australia, who's never even heard stories like this. Yeah, it's it's a judicial system in America. Yeah. It's who you know, and if it's an election year, it's even worse for a criminal because they're going to pull out any idiot oh, yeah. to make them look like heroes. And, it, and they got away with some comments about hanging me over and over again. We're going to sink one good apple with the rest of the bad ones, and your client's not that good of an apple. And, you know, things like that. And I remember Bailey really got uh, pissed when they are. Uh, someone made a comment that he's a drunk with shaky hands. And that's when he lost his mind. That's when he got, went speaking at all the colleges, told all the colleges the cases he was working on. And they were looking up case laws by the thousands and flooding the office, just submitting, submitting, submitting. Now it wasn't one lawyer against the system. It was every lawyer in the state. <laughs> Um, one guy just rallied the troops, and barely so, could do uh, that. So, so you're declared not guilty the second time around. Yes. Did the state reopened the homicide investigation. Um. Yeah. Yeah. One of my co-defendants is still away, and my other co-defendant came home within the past couple of years. And I wish everybody the best. And like I said, even the eyewitness who blamed me. I mean, you're talking about. 15, 16-year-old kids that are being bullied into mob life and beaten up by mob guys and mob associates and bullied in. And they didn't know what they were getting into. Like I said, life became living hell. So what happened transpired, transpired. It's a horrible thing, but it's a horrible thing when you you got grown men picking on 15, 16-year-old kids trying to shake them down. You know, the uh, the worst testimony there is is eyewitness testimony. Yeah, definitely. Barely taught me that. Everybody, you know, everybody uh, watches uh, television. Too much television. Well, you have an eyewitness. The guy's got to be. He's got to be the guy. But you ask any police officer, any lawyer, any judge, eyewitness yeah. testimony is the worst. I've handled cases where you got five witnesses and they have eyewitnesses and they all swear to it what they saw and you got five different stories. Yeah. You see what they want to see. We I had have a, a lot of that going on with um, some lawyer that was watching from the window, Mr. Schindler or something. You know, and he, he said he heard gunshots and he couldn't see out the first window. And he went to the second window and the gunshots were still going on. And he said he had to go to the third window, shut the light and clear the ice and looked out. And then he saw the murders taking place. Bailey pointed out, he goes, by the time he ran to the third window, three guys shooting guns, 30 shots. It's like a pack of fireworks. You would never made it to the second window. Yeah. You know, the whole time frame was screwed up. Again, another guy looking for glory. That's all he was doing. Yeah. He also said that his secretary um, cut my picture out of the Boston Herald. Uh, They were kind enough to put my picture on the front page of the Boston Herald before they put me in a police lineup. (laughs) uh, He said that his secretary told him to do that. So Bailey had the idea, let's put his secretary on the stand. And she got on the stand, she started crying and say, I never did that. He never told me to do that. So he was lying. and. Bailey just axed them one at a time. Oh, yeah. He went through them. <laughs> he was efficient. No, he <laughs> you know, to to, to, to uh, uh, prove a point, I, I teach on a college, on a university level. The first day, second day of class, I'd be talking about eyewitness testimony. And then uh, this, is a, this is all prearranged. I have somebody come into the class and hand me something that I was supposed to sign. And they were uh, standing with me for about 10 seconds. I went through a couple of pages, signed what I had to sign. I gave it to the to the student who came in and they left. Once the student's gone, I said, everybody take out some paper. Tell me what you saw. They write it down. The 30, 40 students in, in the room, they got race wrong. They got gender wrong, uh, clothes. And they're standing right there. You know, yeah. I mean, you're, 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 you're predisposed to see what you want to see. And when oh, you're on the basically put in your head, they usually you know, yeah. lead you with their questions and you know, whatever way they want you to go. Yeah, well, the once they arrest you, they stop looking for suspects. The prosecutors prepare the witnesses, at least that's what they call it, 
but little by little, it's 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 brainwashing. Yeah, they they convince them. I mean, I say this happens this happens uh, in all cases, but it's not the way to properly conduct an investigation. You have to have an open mind. But when you zero in on on a target that looks good, like you, you know, with uh, maybe a, a little you know CD background, and they can bring that into the case. Uh, you know, we have the fairest system there is, or so I'm told. Uh, <laughs> you know, I had I had the greatest mentor in the world called Frank Costello. Any time there was an inkling of something happening, he would secure an attorney for me because then they had to go to the attorney first to say, your client, you got to bring him in. Well, that gave me enough time to leave the country. I've left the country for 22 months. I've never been fugitive. I never was served so I could do what I want. I wait for the case to go away because he told me, they're going to put you in jail just for association. You know yeah. too many people. And it's, you know, especially during an election year, yeah. forget about it. You're a target. I've never been in jail. Never had handcuffs on. Oh, oh Ed, what time is it now? It's time to make some money. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be right back. God bless you. Paul, don't yes. go anywhere. Because we know where you live, we know where they live. We'll be right back. We are pleased to announce the publication of a new book series from Gianni Russo and Patrick Piccarelli entitled The Sixth Family. When the alleged daughter of Marilyn Monroe asks for help, Gianni Russo becomes entangled in a web of lies and violence in the search for the late actress's diary. Soon, he is enmeshed in a mystery that involves a presidential candidate. A disgruntled Mafia Copo, a retired NYPD detective, and the past of Mafia boss Frank Costello. Russo must race against the clock to stop a hostile reorganization of the American Mafia while trying to stay one step ahead of a faceless killer. While listening to this book, skillfully read by Gianni himself, the listener will have to determine what is true and what is fiction. Or as Gianni says before this epic story begins, this book is a work of fiction, except for the parts that are true. Look out for the second installment of this exciting new series coming in 2023. The Sixth Family. Book One is available now on Amazon.com. All right, we're back. Paul, great story, man. And what timing mm -hmm. to get F. Lee Bailey at the peak of his career, beyond the peak of his career. Yeah. Man, the biggest guy in the world. Yeah, he, he could do no wrong. He, he had fleets of jets, helicopters. I mean, the guy was flamboyant. I mean, and he was good at what Daddy he did. First, he had uh, the Boston Strangler, plus others. Uh, he really, no, oh, he had a lot good of cases. cases. Did you know that, Julia? He had the, he had Patty Hearst. Yeah, yeah. I was doing some research into that the other day. I mean, that, that case in itself. I mean, the cases. The picture was on the wall in the office. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what's interesting? Like, Pat just said something that here is a man with all the knowledge in the world of the law, and they brought him down. They brought him down at the end. I mean, this poor guy was disbarred. Yeah. This that's is how you have to type a disbarred lawyer. It's, it's you know, jealousy comes into play here. Oh, Step, yeah. Toes he stepped on, prosecutors he stepped on over the yeah. years. If they see an in uh, where no one else would get, you know, called to the carpet on what he did or, or, or would have had a chance to rectify it, do we want to go through what he was arrested for? Yeah, that's public information. Right. Oh, it's public information. Yeah, he took he took uh, a fee in cash, and uh, he was uh, what was the exact charge? You know, you could take fees in cash. You just have to pay taxes. It was stocks. I'm pretty sure he took stocks, and they went up in value. And the guy wanted the value for them that they went up in. Although when he took them, they were less money. And then the guy wanted the full value for them. So the guy the ratted them out. Yeah. More or less. That's pretty much that's what I was yeah. hanging around the office back then. That's a pretty pissy case. Yeah. But I there mean, was another case, a major mob guy, that they were keeping an eye on. And he started defending that guy. 
And then during that guy gave him the opening to go to his safe deposit boxes because that's where the stocks were being held. And when they went in there, they found $3 million in cash. Now they wanted to know, where did you get that? And that's how his case blew up. He could never give up the guy that gave him the money. It was a friend of mine, major, major killer. And he gave him the money. And he was he was uh, masterminding his case in a boiler room they put together. His name was not on the as the attorney, but he was giving them all the information. And they knew that. And if this guy got out, and he did anyway, but that's where they went after him. They destroyed him, unfortunately. It's it's a crazy, I mean, that's why when I heard you were coming on, I know so much about this guy and had dinner with him. I, I, I used to meet them in Miami just to sit and talk with them. They were brilliant. I mean, brilliant guys. And uh, Malnick what? is still around. You know that, don't you? Malnick's 91, man. Sharp as a tack. I talk to him once a month. One of the most brilliant lawyers in the world. What year did uh, did Effie Bailey get jammed up? Defend me. I think it was 94, 95 was the trial. Okay, so he... It started he, in 86. Okay, <laughs> he, he was he, he was a disbarred lawyer all that time. He, he didn't die too long ago. He died a couple of, three, four years ago. Yeah, he, I think it was, had to be about three, four years ago. I think he what? did his last show up, Maine. It was a cooking show. A cooking show. Up in Maine. Oh yeah, yeah, he was, yeah, um, he was a family. Robert and son Teddy and um, I was up there. I did a show with them too, uh, talking about Effie Bailey up there. Oh, um, Effie Bailey, the the, the 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 country's preeminent criminal lawyer, was doing a cooking show. Oh, he loved to cook. He loved the limelight. Yeah, he would do anything. He'd get up and sing with you if you want. If, if you just <laughs> to see him perform, like at the no, courtroom, outside the courtroom, it was just amazing. No, he he loved it. It was uh, perfect. He called me aside during the middle of the trial one time, and um, it just so happened the night of the murders, I had an asthma attack earlier that day, and I'm home and I'm I'm calling every ex girlfriend I know up to come and spend some time with me. I don't want to be overload sick, you know. So I got like six to eight ex girlfriends all show up at the courthouse. They're all going to come in as witnesses, and my current fiance. And he looks at me and he goes, when you're done up here, tell me how you do that. I said, do what? He goes, I got three ex-wives. I can't get them in the same state. He goes, you got six ex-girlfriends <laughs> over there buying lunch for each other. He goes, tell me how you do it. And uh, just funny little things like that really kept me going. Um, he was, yeah, he asked was me if I was nervous one time and told him what they said. And he's like, our presence here is like casting pearls before swine. <laughs> and I just remember that all the time. It's just um, saying. Um, and when... when when he defended the Boston Strangler, or the one who was convicted of being Boston Strangler, mm -hmm. Albert DeSalvo, mm -hmm. he, he, he did that pro bono, too. I mean, that was yeah. a huge case. He was innocent. Uh, whoever the Strangler was, and I don't think it was DeSalvo, and neither did Boston, uh, F. Lee Bailey. But Pretty they said, well, F. Lee Bailey, he's going to say Hitler was innocent. You know, but over the years, more evidence has, has come to light that indicates that DeSalvo was innocent. DeSalvo's problem was he confessed. Yeah. He liked oh, yeah. he liked the limelight. He liked he liked the photographers. He liked everything. He didn't realize or didn't care. You know, to, let's put it this way: the guy wasn't wrapped too tight. I mean, who would do that? No. Spend the rest of your life in jail just because you're getting your you know your name in the paper? Well, but he the was in there with the real murderer. He was locked up with him to solve with the real murderer. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if the guy's dead or alive, so I don't want to say any names, but. It's pretty common knowledge who the real Boston Strangler was. Yeah, I know. And, uh, and at the time, everybody was ripping apart F. Lee Bailey. This guy will say anything to get his client off, you know, and, you know, fast forward 40 years. And he was right. Yeah. You know? He was. <laughs> okay, so, Paul, you're out of, you're out of jail. You're, 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 you're free. There's no probation. There's no parole. There's nothing. What do you do with you? How old are you, first of all, at this time? Um. Right now, out. I think I was 21. I think it was 25 when they released, when I got out. Oh, wow. 89. You were young. 25? Yeah. I was wow. 21 years old. I was never away from home before. Next thing I know, I'm shoved in Chow Street Jail. It was a Civil War prison. 
in the <laughs> toilet. She had bowls sticking out of the wall. That was a five-star hotel. I can't even get in. <laughs> I love that. That's perfect. Uh, all the so, windows were broken, pigeons flying around inside, snow on the first tier. Yeah. Uh, so what is your it's okay, you're 25 years old. What do you do? Uh, um probably a lot of the, everything I wasn't supposed to do. I came home really mean, chip on my shoulder. Uh, a lot of people were understandable killing me and hurting me. And uh yeah, I had to defend myself. Well, you had to have a lot of guys in the neighborhood that respected you, the real guys. Just no, 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 they they were uh, in the middle of a mob war. Both sides of the mob war were dating sisters in the same family in that trial. Oh, oh, oh. so I had. Uh, I forgot I, about that war. That, that yeah, that. I had guys on both sides of the mob war trying to ice me, plus uh, my other friends who didn't want me back. My own. So what did you do? Did you go back into life in any form? Um, went to service merchandise, bought two black powder pistols. Captain balled them up, walked to the playground, turned the corner, opened the long leather jacket, pulled out that hog and started pulling shots over people's heads. Let everybody know I'm home. Everybody scattered. Welcome home. That's it. And yeah, after but that, I just kept doing the same stuff. The crazier I got, the less people came. That makes sense. So what what were you doing? Who who were you with? You had to be with somebody up there. You can't operate. I was. No, he's. I, I, I was with a lot of people, and uh, <laughs> until one night, uh, I got a phone call. I was told not to go hang in the playground where I always hang, and it happened to be by two of the hitmen who are both dead now, uh, Rico Ponzo and uh, Bobby Blur Jr. And uh, they called me and told me not to go. And uh, they whacked my uh, co-defendant, Frankie De Benedetto. They uh, gunned him down with shotguns. They were loaded with birdshot by mistake. And he lived. And, uh, he's still serving time. He's still serving a natural life sentence of Walpole. Uh, he's an ordained minister now, I think, and everything. Oh, they all find God yeah, in jail. Definitely yeah. life. They should really consider letting him go. He was a child when all this happened. We all were. How long has he, he been in? Close to 40 years. Jeez, man. So, so, Julia, have any comments on this? I'm, I'm reading your face. I wish our audience could see all that. They could see it once we... You want to really know how really strange it gets? The person who framed me and said it was me and ruined my life actually asked me for forgiveness last year. And really? I granted it to him. I had coffee with him less than two weeks ago. Oh, wow. How That's does that make you feel? That's great. Uh, how does that make you feel? Um... He called me up. Uh, someone caught me on the phone. He said, he goes, Paul, I'm tired. He says, he goes, I'm tired of living in fear. He goes, you're either going to jump out and shoot me or stab me at some point. He goes, when you see me, he says, I can't live like this anymore. He goes, he goes, he goes, please forgive me. What do I got to do? And I just told him, we're good. And then started talking here and there, and that was it. Wow. So, and we talk a lot more about, like, how it was growing up on the corner and hanging out, you know, with Jimmy Lamoli and the Cooper Street crew and selling fireworks in the Stillman playground and the good you know, memories, the good memories. little scores here and there, you know, robbing the arcade and rug stores and whatever else, you know. I tell you, I, I have to admire. We were just those young kids, it, mischievous, mischievous. It's a rare, it's a rare Italian that that doesn't hold a grudge, and somebody that's involved in the life and, and criminality. I mean, that's like tenfold. You never forget anything. I mean. Johnny, yeah. you, you you could probably tell a story. Somebody that has an argument with a guy 20 years ago holds a grudge over uh, uh, going to the grocery store to get tomatoes. Some ridiculous thing. Stupid. And 20 uh, years later, they bring it up again. They drug guns and kill each other. Yeah. I mean, I've he seen was, it. He was a 16-year-old kid that they they involved in mob scores. You know what I mean? They shouldn't yeah. be involved in children and stuff like that. You know, so... I mean, the last time I seen him, he was 16. I see him now, he's a grown man. We're both old men now, you know? So it's kind of weird. It's How old are you now, if you don't mind saying? I was 21. No, how old are you now? Now? I'm going to be 60 in September. <laughs> oh, oh, wow, you're a young man. Yeah, well, compared to us, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I have three children older than you. And I take a lot of flack over being his friend and talking to him and stuff like that. But, I mean... So that whole thing, a lot of people don't realize that started the whole Salemi war uh, up in Boston. 
Wow. Because uh, the cocaine was robbed out of Salemi's office above the Saloma Club. And, well, that was the start of the whole thing. That old Boston Salemi Wall thing, that was the kickoff. It's all about the money. Yep, okay, so that missing cocaine, and they went hunting for it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so for the rest of, of, of your adulthood, what did you do? Um, well, the whole time the trial went on, I was basically working and hustling. <laughs> after jail, after jail. After jail, after I came home on bail, I had, still had lots of bills I had to pay, old legal bills that I had to catch up on, private investigators, polygraph examiners, and... I actually took and passed a polygraph exam from, um, I think his name was Lynn Marcy out of Dearborn, Michigan. He was the president of the American Polygraph Society, answers to the president of the United States when he does agents. And yeah. they told him uh, that he wasn't uh, reputable. <laughs> yeah, he kind of went off. Every Bailey destroyed the whole thing. Back then, Massachusetts was one of the only states that actually allowed the polygraph test with the judge's you know, consent. Well, and once I passed it, the judge didn't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've been a, a polygraphist. This is how I started in the business, but I've given thousands of polygraph tests. Uh, generally, the general rule across the country is in every jurisdiction. Now, when people say, well, you can't admit the results of polygraph tests in court. Yes, you can. If both sides stipulate. Uh, and how often is that going to happen? Right. Uh, the, the the OJ case was, uh, you know, we're talking about F. Lee Bailey and the OJ case. OJ took took a polygraph test, mm -hmm. and I know the person who administered it. I don't want to mention his name. And the theory was, uh, well, OJ is an actor, and I use the word loosely, but they figured if he can act, so to speak, he can probably bluff his way through a test. So what the defense thinks in cases like this when they want a guilty client to take a polygraph test is that they can beat it. And in OJ's case, I figured he's an actor. He can act his way out of it. Anyway, I saw that chart, you know, that long piece of paper that comes out, it's called the chart. So the guy who gave the test was a friend of mine. But anyway, uh, he failed it so miserably. The, the object was if he passed the test, uh, the opposition, the prosecutor wasn't going to admit it, but the defense was going to leak the results of the test. The inquirer, anybody that, that would... And it would it would taint the jury pool, you know. But he failed that miserably. Yeah. I mean, not much of an actor, but you know we know that. But uh, polygraph, you'll never get both sides saying, "Yeah, admit it." You know, there's, somebody always has some kind of an argument. But you know, no, you know the, the the dumbest part of that case, and they were all sitting there. F. Lee Bailey. I mean, you name. I, I know every one of those attorneys. And when they got up and said, if the glove don't fit, you have to acquit. <laughs> I mean, I'll never forget that. Yeah, this was a this was a glove. A glove. That anybody oh. can spread their hand. It's already been wet and from it. I mean, it's it, not it gonna was, fit it, a midget. <laughs> it was it was wet from blood. I know so it's leather, so it shrinks. But not only that, uh, not to contaminate the glove, he was wearing a glove under the glove. I mean, it was so funny. And when I saw that. that after all of those, I mean, that was a trial that went on forever. Yeah. That that was like got the highest rating on television for months. Well, that was one of the, had to see yeah. this in this country. This is a just, man that killed two people. Yeah. And I know that he did it. Oh, well, really? I know that <laughs> he did it. I mean, and, and that, that poor kid brought glasses back from the, re the restaurant because her mother left them on the table. Yeah, Goldman. Yeah. Goldman, yeah. I mean... I mean, they had DNA, but the problem was they had DNA evidence, but that was at the infancy of DNA. And yeah. uh, there was, they were talking such technicalities to the jury that they were literally getting put to sleep. Now in juries, everybody expects DNA because they're, they're watching too much CSI on television. You know, they know more about DNA than the forensic scientists know. Back then, they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Yeah, it was so and a lot uh, of corruption, too. You know, oh, I mean, that's, you know, oh in my, my God. Case, that um, when they started my second trial, they were looking for a piece of evidence, a bloody baseball cap from one of the victims. And it just happened to be found in a bag with my leather jacket, contaminating my jacket. So when they says, oh, well, we can't tell if this was contaminated before or after this or that, 
And after he barely pulled out a piece of paper, he goes, no, we had Mr. Tanzo's jacket privately tested back in 1986. Here's the thing. And it wasn't contaminated in 1986, and it shouldn't have been contaminated in 95 either. Uh, and he really covered all his bases. To well, see that's him, the one thing. No, to have him, he, I mean, he was uh, the master. You should have seen him with the polygraph exam. Oh, my God. He humiliated. He verbally beat that guy. <laughs> He uh, gets him on the stand. He's like, um, so you know about polygraphs? Yes. He says, uh, do you, have you gone to school for them? He's like, no. He's like, um, how do you use them? He goes, well, I use them every day and I train with them and I train other people how to use them. He says, well, how do you get your knowledge how to use these polygraphs? He goes, well, I read books. So Bailey picks up a book and he talks to him. He goes, if you read a book on flying in jets, can you take my plane for a ride? <laughs> you know, overrule. <laughs> Everybody went wild at that point, but the point was made. Oh yeah, you know what I mean, he really—he he just had the right things to say at the right time. He had some great, uh, just to watch. Yeah, you know, I mean, when you're when you're a, an effective criminal lawyer at that level, you have to be an actor. Oh no, they are. Yeah, they yeah. study. I mean, I have I have one of my. In fact, I have. My original attorney, Barry Slotnick, great attorney. His son now is my attorney, Stu Slotnick. We just beat a major case nobody even knew about. But his father taught him. And if you want to read a great book, it's out now. I mean, it's the defense attorney. The people he had, but it's all theatrics. He used to go to tanning beds, get his suits made. He's an actor. When he gets in front of that jury... That's what they do, and they and they're masters at it. They're masters, yeah. and and get a half a repu reputation, you're done. You keep going. That's crazy, crazy business. Julia, I would like for for just you being the eyes and ears of our younger group of audience. What do you have to say in, to Paul in curiosity or whatever? I mean, this is what we do, Paul. We like to include the the millenniums. Because they're saying like, who? Right now, they she thinks she's over here in a conversation in a in a saloon somewhere up in the north end. <laughs> it was so crazy to listen to and to learn all of this, and not you know not having been alive when any of this was happening, just to hear these stories. But to have such a high caliber person represent you and to do it pro bono and. To do other cases pro bono, did he ever discuss with you why he did that? I mean, it's, I won't even know where to begin. Uh, it's, I, like I said, Ken Fishman was like really the anchor behind everything. When it came like to pulling everything together, I, I could never say enough greatness about him. And definitely barely knew how to pick the best teams. You know, Ken was staring the ship. <laughs> oh, no, no. You know, That's Ken knew me since a child. He, he watched me grow up in that office. You know? No, he had teams. He, and that, I mean, to, to give credit to the rest of the people, the investigators, oh, yes. and all these guys, he had the best. Yeah. But that's what he knew how to do. And they all wanted to work with him. They, that's how they're getting their credits and their recognition. Yeah. And that's what it's about. And but yeah, it's God, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. You know, Paul, you really helped yourself. After all this said and done with uh, with the trial, uh, to my way of thinking, that's just half of it. What you went through and the people who did you wrong, if you would have held a grudge and you did forgive who you had to forgive, you would have been a bitter old guy. No, he would have been dead. Yeah. It would have took him The would have killed you. No. Well, it didn't all end uh, exactly the way, like, when the trial was over, I was engaged uh, to a beautiful young woman. I was pulling through nursing school and um, stopped all illegal activity. I enrolled in North Bend Street Industrial School to be a jeweler. And uh, it was the first college I ever went to at that point. And everything seemed to be going fine. And I just put everything behind me. And I got a phone call six months into school. Uh, my mother had pancreatic cancer. Oh, wow. And you have to deal with that. Yes. Yeah. Well, but the, the attitude is everything. Yeah, it was like, that was it. That was the thing, you know. And then, uh, you know, some of these people making weird, bad, just comments. That's what she gets, having a sound like him and stuff like that. And I kind of went off the deep end. <laughs> well, so, how could you not, you know? Yeah, yeah but 
you know, you, you really turned your life around. You know, you, you, hear, you hear people say that a lot. But when you really look deep down, a lot of them that said they did really didn't. But you did. Oh, yeah. What are you doing with yourself now these days? I'm, I'm working up at all quality autos. <laughs> Route 1 in Saugus, next to Hockey Town, with uh, Eddie Portala gave me a job up there, and I'm working with him. And we're just trying to get the place running. And like, it was a former condemned building, and we've been up here working since last summer, trying to get everything up and going. And, and what, what do you know, want to make it? That's interesting to know. Hmm? What, what are you trying to make that building now? Well, we were uh, originally selling cars, and... Uh, we're having some ordinance problems with City Hall once again, you know the way it goes. And but um they're working everything out. And um, I have all the faith in the world, these guys. I mean, they really look out for me, take care of me like big brothers. Oh, that's great. Good. Oh, that's important. You have that now. I don't know if you know uh, Bill Stacks from chatting with Stacks. He usually comes up here and stays up here a couple of nights a week. I do the overnight security, and he oh, comes wow. up here and hangs out with me. He's, uh, he's really cool. Yeah. You know, I met him and uh, when he was just starting too, and I just did my first like podcast. And we just had to hit it off, had a lot of laughs. You know? That's good. I'm happy for you. And I'm sure our audience listening to what you went through and survived, yeah. and you have a great attitude. I mean, it's the first yeah. time I met you. I'd hang well, up with you. <laughs> well, Paul, we'd like to thank you for, for, for being on our show. And very, uh, very uh, enlightening. We've truly never had anybody like you on the show that doesn't have an axe to grind, that isn't isn't complaining about the past, about the future, about everything else. Uh, you you were owned up to everything, and that's that's really commendable. What do you think, Gianni? Oh, I, I, it definitely is. And my invitation to you on uh, July twentieth. It's a Thursday night. You know the Regent Theater in Arlington. Please mm -hmm. be my guest. Get in touch with me and tell me how many tickets you want. I'd love yeah, to see definitely. you. Definitely. Definitely. Sounds good. Do you know a place on, on up there on Sunday nights that do Sinatra nights in an Italian restaurant? They just invited me. I'm going to be there. Sunday on nights in the summer. Now that out there. I'm sure there's a dozen places doing Sinatra nights. Well, you know, guy Joe the Baker up there. He's a big baker, industrial baker. He's coming okay. to the fancy food show with me on, on Sunday. Um, that no, I, I'll, 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 I can help you out with some friends if you don't know them. <laughs> I they probably all know me. I, I probably Good. know them by nicknames and stuff like that. Uh, like I'd I, love I, to see I used you. to hang in all the time when Nikki first opened. Oh my but, God, um, yeah. His previous owner was Frankie Pizzarella. He was like a father to me. And uh, mm -hmm. he owned Rosina's restaurant. He actually sold Vegas to Nikki. Yeah. I mean, I know all those guys at Point Lemon all those guys when they. Yeah, Neil, good. Oh, the yeah. Restaurant. <laughs> Look at the restaurant. Yeah. Look at the restaurants Nikki has opened since then. My God. Yeah. There's all the, uh, you got Payucas on Pimenta Street. You got Artus, uh, Donato over there. And, you know, there's so many good places down there. Oh, my yeah, God. Victoria. Yeah. You know, they they see the Victoria Cafe now, you know, and it's all glitzed up. They should have seen it in the 70s. That wasn't a fire you walked into. <laughs> you know, Thank you so place. much, though. We're going to be in touch with you. And, uh, Oh, thank yeah. you for having me. I hope I did okay. And uh, oh, you did great, man. You did great. Okay, you wrote the script. Hello. <laughs> I hope so. Um, okay, I well, all these come off. All but, right. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. And like right. I said, if I could ever do anything, please uh, get in touch with me. And I'm looking forward to seeing you down the feast this summer. Please, I'll be there. <laughs> I'll introduce you to some of my friends. <laughs> there you go. All right, Paul. Right. Have a have a good day, man. All right, uh, thank have you. Have a good day. Thank you. I right, please. Okay, we're going to do one more commercial, come back. I just want to do a recap so that Julia and our audience can understand what we don't understand, and maybe Julia can figure it out, and vice versa. We'll be right back. Corleone Vodka on March 9th was picked as the best vodka for martinis in the world by the Rob Report. By calling 518-713-4050, or 518-220-9463. It could be shipped directly to your house. The finest vodka in the world by Rob Report. Okay, we're back. And uh, that guest, I have to say, Pat. Yeah. Right, thank you for finding him. Yeah. Yes, this is all new to you. We've been doing this for two years. You've been doing this for three shows. 
<laughs> Are you in shock yet? <laughs> Actually, we've been doing this for four years. Four years. Yeah. But um, are you enjoying it? <laughs> oh, I most definitely am. Like the amount that I'm even have just learned in the past, like three episodes having been on here with you guys is just crazy. Like, you know, I, I grew up watching some like documentaries about true crime and things like that. And, you know, I watched the recent like Ted Bundy stuff and it was always things that were like interesting and, but like hearing real live stories about this is just crazy and just like you know hearing people's lives and how one thing then affected the rest of the trajectory of their life is just crazy well it's a great example though i mean to have the attitude he has man it's phenomenal yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. he's a happy-go-lucky guy and you really have to be like that otherwise you get old and bitter and that doesn't (laughs) stop anything because the people that you're angry at they don't care (laughs) (laughs) that they're going on with their lives they they, you know it's they really don't care. But uh, Julia, you're going to find as time goes on, you, you, you get used to this life and the, the type of guests we have on. You, you'll be you'll be jumping in more. You'll be asking more questions. Oh, yeah, and, definitely. Uh, I was I was it, just. No, you got to be but, in shock. But don't, yeah. we don't want you. We don't want you to be afraid. Just. Oh no no no. Digest no, no. it. Digest it. And yeah. The, the, right now, for you, is a learning experience, and everybody goes through it. You know, yeah. this time next year, you're going to have your own crew of wise guys. You're going, to be going, you're going to be committing crimes. You'll have your own family. Your father yeah, yeah. will <laughs> She can say, Gianni taught me. You know. There you yeah. go. Taught me the ways. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in, as usual. We're here every Wednesday dropping a new show. Thank you for staying with us all these years, man. We got yeah. 257 hours up now. God bless. Julia, what a delight. Pat, I'll see you on the radio. Okay, buddy. And that was Thanks that. And I'll be back. You can contact no Gianni Russo no or Patrick Picciarelli with your questions and comments no through the contact section of our website, HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Plus, I hung out with the Pope at the Vatican Bank. My kids still can't believe I sat with a saint. My life's like scenes out of a movie. I'm the Hollywood Godfather, truly. I got stories with them all. You know, celebrities, world leaders, icons. Who knows what's next for me? I'll never get too old to have a little fun. Come on, I'm Gianni Russo. A genuine one of a kind. What a ride it's been, this life of mine. And I ain't done yet. I'll be back. Until next time. And that was that.